transition is the description for what happens as a consequence of realizing that that which I am living no longer fits. It's not the thing we seek. What we seek is relief from that feeling. And transition is the process of trying to find that relief. We're in for a special treat today. My very first guest on Where the Road Bends is Jerry Colonna. Jerry is the CEO and co-founder of Reboot, an executive coaching and leadership development firm committed to the notion that better humans make better leaders. He works with some of the top entrepreneurs and leaders in the world. Jerry is also the author of Reboot, The Art of Leadership and Growing Up, and has a new book called Reunion, which is due later this year. Prior to becoming a coach and starting Reboot, Jerry was a partner at J.P. Morgan Partners, a multi-billion dollar private equity fund. He was also a co-founder of Flatiron Partners, which was one of the top venture capital funds in New York City during the dot-com era. Like me, Jerry left the world of venture capital and became an executive coach. Jerry has been a mentor and an inspiration to me for nearly a decade. And he's a huge reason why I became an executive coach. In today's episode, we explore the signs you might be changing and are ready for a transition, the power of sitting still and being alone with oneself, the impact of radical self-inquiry in writing, the act of discovering and refining what matters to you, and so much more. You can follow Jerry at at Jerry Colonna on Twitter and learn more about Reboot at Reboot.io. Without further ado, let's dive into our first conversation with Jerry Colonna. Uh, Hey there, Jerry. I've been really looking forward to this for a long time. In fact, uh, in the last few days, I've been reflecting on how we met. And you probably don't remember this. You may, but in June 2013, you were on This Week in Startups with Calcanus. And I was mm-hmm. relatively early in my investing career. I guess I had been like three years uh, in venture. And I listened to it several times. And there was just something about the way you talked and the way you mm. carried yourself. And it just captivated my attention. And I kept on coming back to it. And I felt like it was so unique in the startup community. And I was drawn to your message, the truth, the depth, the courage. And a few months later, I cold emailed you and we met to explore a coaching relationship. And Mm. while we never actually worked together formally, uh, which I think is not think, I Mm. I know it's something I, I regret. You were always so kind and open and sharing your knowledge as a coach and as a Buddhist. And frankly, you've been a huge inspiration for me as a coach. And I, before I met you, I didn't know what life could look like outside of investing. And you were in a living embodiment of that. So I just wanted to share that my, my heartfelt gratitude and appreciation for that. Oh, that's very, very, very kind of you. And I do recall it now. Um, you know, I, I have an adult brain that... <laughs> Doesn't recall everything, but I remember that. And I also remember the interview with Jason uh, at the time. And Jason, of course, and I have a long standing relationship mm-hmm. that goes back to when we both had hair. No, um, <laughs> it goes back 20, 25 years. And uh, I remember that conversation. It was, it was, it was fun to do. And I remember following up and hearing from you. And, and so I'm glad, thank you for bringing back that memory. Mm. It means a lot. Yeah. Yeah. And, and as I mentioned to you before, your story in a lot of ways is my story. And so that's why I was just so thrilled to have you on the show as my first guest. Well, that's an honor too. You know, I mentioned before we started recording, I mentioned that top of mind for me is the new book that I'm working on. And, and a very, very important theme in that book is this phenomena that I experienced after I released Reboot, which is the wide variety of people who read the book and had, in fact, exactly the same response, which is that your story is my story. Mm-hmm. Of course, the irony is all of the details amongst those people are very different. Mm. 
But, um, you know, and in our cases, I think our details are more similar than mm-hmm. because of that road through venture capital. But uh, I know the feeling. I know how important it is to to find resonance with someone else's story. I think it's a very healing process. So I appreciate you saying that. Mm. And obviously, there's a, there's a lot of ground we could cover, but I think a great place for us to start is to go back to the dot-com era when you were a VC at Flatiron Partners. And you wrote in your book, you went from writing about the news as an editor prior mm-hmm. to your investing career to being mm-hmm. in the news as an investor. Mm-hmm. And what I'm most curious about is who was Jerry Colonna at the height of the dot-com era? Well, I guess the first thing I would say is, and boy, wasn't that a mind fuck? Um, <laughs> going from uh, writing about the news to being written about. Um, who was he? Well, on his best days, on my best days, uh, I remained the same person. I was curious, mm-hmm. kind of geeky, kind of nerdish. I remember as a young reporter, uh, in a similar way to that you are as a VC, people come in and kind of pitch you. They're not mm-hmm. pitching you to get a check, but they're pitching a story. And I remember this phenomena of feeling like, oh, wow, this is cool. This would be interesting to exist. Mm-hmm. And that feeling very much carried over when I was a venture capitalist. On my best days, on the worst days, on my worst days, I felt fraudulent. Mm. I felt exhausted. Mm -hmm. I felt uh, empty and hollow. Mm. And uh, as you know, because I wrote about it, it actually had this almost reverse correlation with whatever success I had, Mm. right? The more successful I felt or the more successful I seemed to be, the worse I seemed to feel. Mm which mm-hmm. was also a mindfuck. Yeah, I, I, as, as I was just listening to you and you said empty and hollow, I could feel tears start to well up in my eyes yeah. because I very yeah. much had that same experience. Yeah, I, I, I think, Steve, and I don't mean to project it onto you, so reject it if it doesn't feel right, but for me, it very much felt like I was living in someone else's body, mm-hmm. right? I, 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 I could animate the body. I could move the arms and I could do the things. And I mm-hmm. did them quite skillfully, but it wasn't my body. Mm-hmm. It wasn't my life. Mm-hmm. I could admire and understand that life. And I have profoundly important friendships that date from that time. You know, my partner at the time was Fred, Fred Wilson. And we remain close friends, but that wasn't my life. Mm-hmm. And in 2001, you went to Fred and you told him that you weren't sure what was happening to you or mm-hmm. what you wanted to do long term, but you knew you couldn't commit to building another f- fund with him. Yeah. I mean, and, and to put some context into it. So arguably the peak of that boom period was around December 99. Mm-hmm. By March of 2000, the NASDAQ had crashed and it was just, it just literally was like a clusterfuck. Everything was just collapsing left and right, left and right. And that, ten, that happened to correlate, but not be causative, of a depression that had been building for quite some time. So... We struggled through 2000 and into the spring of 2001, and I could be getting my dates wrong in terms of when the the market crashes happened. But I remember the spring of 2001, by that point, we were negotiating with our sole LP, which was J.P. Morgan Chase, because they wanted to pull back their commitment, and there was a breakup fee that we were negotiating over, and, and Fred, who is just a great great person and, and a fighter in so many ways was like, ah, screw him. We'll go out. We'll and I couldn't commit, mm-hmm. you know, at, at that point, I wasn't ready to walk away from the business, 
Mm-hmm. But I knew that if I were to go on the road and fundraise, and you, you know about this, when you, you, you take on this sort of moral and ethical responsibility when you ask people for money that you will invest on their behalf, right? And I could not put myself in the position of taking on that responsibility. Yeah. For me, it was also around the 10-year life cycle of the fund. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And that cognitive dissonance of... Is this really what I want to do for the next 10 years of my life? That's right. That's right. In, ad- in addition to that responsibility. That's right. That's right. I, I, I think that that 10-year that cycle is, is, I smiled when you said that because, yeah, I think there is a cyclicality that moves in those decade-long uh, pieces. So, yeah. And then as 2001 unfolded. Mm-hmm. 9-11, mm-hmm. what unfolded from there? Well, you know, I was just saying to a friend this morning that 9-11 in some ways had a similar impact that COVID has had, which was a kind of re-evaluation of everything, a reassessment. You know, for me in particular, I was very, very committed to New York City and felt very strongly connected and felt, um, I didn't feel so personally threatened, but I felt that that which I had come to love so much, which was the city, was threatened. But in throwing myself in and responding the way I often do, which is throw myself into something and just get consumed by it. In this case, there was a recovery effort that I became a part of. Uh, which was helping small businesses impacted by the attacks. I think that what coming as it did at this sort of beginning of a midlife reassessment started me down a path of saying, really deeply asking the question, how do I want to live my life? Mm. How old were you at the time? Uh, 38, going to 39. So, you know, the magic number 40. That's right. Moving ahead. Yeah. Those were the years that I I started my transition. Well, that's, you know, it's a magical time. And for those folks who are listening, who may be entering that period, I'll speak like the older brother that I am. It's okay. You're going to get through this period. And on the other side of it, it's fucking awesome. It is great. Yeah. It's just scary as shit getting to that place. And in your book, you write about almost throwing yourself in front of the subway. Mm -hmm. February 2nd, 2002. Yeah. And, you know, again, for more context, um, my relationship with the black dog of depression went back to childhood. And and I had uh, attempted suicide when I was 18. And failed, thankfully. Uh, was in the hospital for about three months following, following that. And came back and went to school and started going to therapy in an intense way. And so when the depression came back and the suicidal ideation came back, it was different. Um, there was like a meta-awareness about it, like... I have to take this fucking seriously Mm -hmm. because, you know, statistically speaking, those who attempt once and come to that place a second time are more likely to succeed the second time. Mm -hmm. And my then therapist was incredibly supportive. And I'm just, I'm just grateful that I, did not choose to leap. I'm really, really happy that I chose to call my therapist instead. And what what did what did they say to support you in that moment? Well, her name was Dr. Sayers, and 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 nice Jewish lady from Great Neck, Long Island. And she said, "Get a cab and come out and see me right now." <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, and uh, God bless you. She passed a mm. number of years ago, but uh, at 93 years old. Wow. Wow. But she, uh, we worked together for almost 30 years. Amazing. But she, she took charge. 
Mm-hmm. You know, I, I joke when I emulate her voice and I say, get in a cab. But there is something very, very comforting in being told what to do at that moment. And uh, because I couldn't tell you what to do, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, I couldn't tell myself what to do. And so, and then from there, she suggested that I go to Canyon Ranch um, to recuperate a bit. And uh, so that's what I did. On that trip to Canyon Ranch, you were gifted some books. I was. So my sister Anne uh, had given me Let Your Life Speak by Parker Palmer and When Things Fall Apart by Pema Chodron. And I discovered Faith by Sharon Salzberg. Mm-hmm. And as I often say, those three books saved my life. Yeah, those those three books I read in 2009. Mm-hmm. Or sorry, 2019 when I was mm-hmm. leaving, when I was officially leaving mm-hmm. VC, all that, that, mm-hmm. that one summer. So mm-hmm. those have also had a big impact. And I mean, you had, you've had the opportunity to get to know Parker and Pema. And Sharon, all three. I, all you know, three. I often joke that I must have done something right in a previous life because I have been so blessed with the possibility of becoming friends with all three of them. And uh, Parker is, uh, I can hear his booming laughter in my ears right now, is uh, a guide, a mentor, a brother. Sharon is, and she wouldn't mind me saying this, you know, very much a good mother. Mm -hmm. Um, I talk Mm -hmm. to her every other week. And Pema is, our relationship is is less intimate, but no less effective. Uh, effective and we write to each other we write letters mm. to each other which uh is delightful and she has borne witness to my children becoming adults and the transitions in my life and uh yeah well what, what's what's coming to mind for me is the impact that uh, a book you know a, a gift can have when you least expect it and really mm-hmm. speak to you in a time of need. Mm-hmm. I think that's, that's part of the magic of being human, right? Is we, we run into a conversation or we have a chance encounter or a dear friend says, here, or in this case, a sibling says, here, read this. You need to read this book. And, uh, and then, man, your life just takes this twist. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm actually working on an essay right now around this concept of portals mm. and this, I, this idea of, you know, we're walking around and all around us are these invisible portals. And if we open mm. our eyes, they can lead us into all these amazing new worlds. It reminds me of uh, a poem uh, by Adrian Rich uh, called... Uh, prospective immigrants, please note. And she says, uh, either you will go through this doorway or you will not. Mm-hmm. And she later on, she says, uh, if you go through, you, you, you run the risk of remembering who you are. Oh, fuck. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So you went to Canyon Ranch, you read these three books. Mm-hmm. I cried. You cried for days, and then, and then you went back to J.P. Morgan, where you were at the time, and you told them and that you weren't renewed. Yeah, you quit. What What were your plans? None, none. I uh, I remember uh, a man who's a good friend of mine, Jeff Walker, who was the head of uh, J.P. Morgan Partners, the, the venture arm that I worked at, uh, the private equity arm, and um, he said. To me, something like, well, what if nobody calls you? Hmm. And I remember saying, I will welcome that because I needed to rest. Yeah. I, 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 it's so funny you say that because when I was leaving primary, yeah. one of my partners who I, I, I love dearly, Ben Son, said, well, if you leave the industry, you might not come back. Mm-hmm. I said, okay, you know, that's... Right. 
And, and, and now with the hindsight, I sort of use this, this metaphor of being in outer space and planet earth being the mm. industry that I, you know, venture mm-hmm. and I'm just floating away and it's okay. Mm-hmm. You know, it's okay. It is okay. It is okay. You know, when we attach a sense of identity so much to the things that we do, which is the way we're often socialized to do, we can fear losing that identity. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that's why that poem, Prospective Immigrants, Please Note, means so much. It's because you run the risk of losing the identity that you have crafted. But what you gain is a sense of who you are independent of all the stories that you tell about yourself, independent of all the persona, independent of the labels. The person, you know, you were talking about meditating before, the person that we are when we sit on the cushion, mm-hmm. the person that we are when, when the lights go out and the music stops and we end up in a chair, musical chairs, and we're just there. And how did you find that, that part of you? How did you find that, that voice? You mean, what was the experience like or how yeah. did I find my yeah. way to that? How did you find your way to that? Yeah. By sitting still. You know, um, the way I interpret the story of the Buddha, um, because I'm from Flatbush, Brooklyn, I will tell it this way. (laughs) The way I interpret it is that kind of midway through the journey of his life in his early 30s, he said, fuck it. Mm -hmm. Like, this isn't working. And I'm just going to sit under this Bodai tree until I figure it out. Mm-hmm. And I think that implicit in that is, a, is an instruction. Sit still. Sit down. Stand still, as the poet David Wagner says. Sit, stand still. When you're lost in the woods, stand still. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, Steve, we're, we're socialized that when the anxiety comes up, we move faster. Mm-hmm. We do more. We make greater and greater plans. We set ourselves to greater and greater tasks out of a wish to, I don't know, beat back some sort of negative story about ourselves. Mm-hmm. But you find yourself by sitting still. Yeah, I'm, 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 th- I'm thinking about the book Transitions by William Bridges, where he mm-hmm. would say when you're in what he would call the messy middle or the wilderness, mm-hmm. people have a tendency to either hit rewind Mm-hmm. and go back to the world that they came from because mm-hmm. it's safe and comfortable or they mm-hmm. press fast forward and then rush mm-hmm. into what's next. Mm-hmm. And this idea of just really being still and listening to what it is that wants to come through you. Yeah. Well, because it's, 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 uh, it's really painful, right? I mean, we both practice meditation and, and I know I can, I can imagine that people come to you the way they will come to me and they say, Oh, you know, I, I can never find the time to meditate. Mm-hmm. I wish I would find the time. I had that conversation today. Well, then when you scratch the surface and you know, you, you, you deconstruct the intellectual objections, right? You, you, you have time to watch some bullshit TV show, but you don't have time to sit still. Okay, so you deconstruct the intellectual resistance, and then you get to this point where what what is it they're really resisting? They're resisting the quiet. Mm -hmm. They're resisting the crazy thoughts that arise when you're sitting on a meditation cushion. They're resisting Mm -hmm. the discomfort of being alone with oneself, right? What did Blaise Pascal say? He said, you know, all of man, gender specific, all everyone's problems would be solved if they could learn to sit still in a room by themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But as you wrote in the book, we run the risk of remembering who we are. Exactly. Exactly. And all that comes with that. All of that, Megillah. And if we have not encountered and come into a new relationship with all that we have been, all that has happened to us, all of the awful things that we tell ourselves that we did, all of the ways that we are undeserving of love, safety, and belonging, mm-hmm. we don't want to encounter that. And so we do a kind of violence of just, okay, move on to the next thing. Next, next, 
next until when you die. Yeah. I was just having a conversation with a former colleague, just a really exceptional founder and has bought, built and sold multiple companies. And he, his previous startup, he just jumped into because it was an opportunity Mm. and he's about two years into it and his heart isn't in it. And he said to me in this transition, as I leave, I have to, I have to just sit still. I can't make any decisions this year. Yeah. You know, in Buddhism, I'll say the wisdom of no action. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. And no action is really hard. When, when, when we live in a society that defines worth by outcome, by wealth, by output, by, you know, you know, accolades, the things, accolades and affirmation, when we live in that world, the possibility of sitting still and doing nothing, it, it, it's so terribly uncomfortable. But yet, the, in my life, the best things that have happened to me have occurred after sitting still. Mm-hmm. And then something meaningful and powerful arises. And boy, howdy, I couldn't imagine doing anything but this thing that I'm doing. And it becomes life-giving and generative. Yeah, the, the ability to sit still. You know, my mother used to say that I had the spulkies, which is a... Oh, ants in your pants. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and she used to say that from the time I was about six years old. Mm-hmm. And I always have friends that are like, you have ADD, how do you sit still? And the honest answer is because it... When I tried it, I realized that it's the way that I made contact with my true self. And it wasn't until I was willing to actually slow down and be still and listen to myself that I was able to know myself and appreciate myself and all of the rigmarole that came with it. Yeah. But that served me really well as it related to sobriety. Yeah. When you're, when you're meditating and you're, you're stoned, you start to ask yourself some questions. Right, right. I, you know, I think that um, to be fair to you, to be fair to both of us, so much of our society is organized to conspire against that impulse to sit still and to know yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, we're constantly presented with a whole host of reasons why to be distracted or to, or or to not be able to answer the question. You know, we joke, I joke often that, you know, how are you is the first mindfulness question, right? Because to answer it truthfully means you actually have to pause and you have to stop and you have to say, well, how am I? What's here now? What's here now? What, 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 what was my morning like? What is my day like, you know? And, and these are not questions that we pay attention to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, I'm, I'm thinking when we started this call before we hit record, you asked, well, how are you doing? Mm-hmm. And immediately I'm like, I'm nervous. Yeah. Because part of that is when you're able to tune into your experience, you can build a language and start to make distinctions around your experience. Yeah. And I, I think, I think you make a, a powerful point. One of the things that in building that language, I mean, something as simple as being able to name the feelings, right? Is to name the, okay, what is this feeling? Well, there's a difference between, say, anger and frustration or sadness and tiredness. They may be related, but there are distinctions between those two. And we, I know you have, have youngsters. One of the things that I worry about is that most of our school systems struggle with being able to help our children identify what's actually mm-hmm. going on inside of them, you know, and, uh, and as a result, we end up growing up, children end up growing into adulthood, lacking the ability to identify the feeling. All they can do is feel it. They don't, they, they end up lacking the skill of being able to process it and talk about it. Hmm. What's coming to mind for me right now, Jerry, is I've been spending a lot of time around kids, as you know, mm-hmm. and I'm struck by 
how frequently little boys cry mm-hmm. and how infrequently grown men do, or at least. Or even adults, right? Yeah, adults. I mean, we, we, it's a complex experience, isn't it? You know, I was struck this week. Uh, we're, we're speaking just a few days after DeMar Hamlin had uh, a heart attack mm-hmm. on the field in Cincinnati. Um, and one of the things I was actually grateful for, and I remain grateful for, is that a lot of the now library video that the news organizations are running are showing these men crying, mm. these men on their knees praying, these yeah. men feeling. And, you know, in our mythology, I mean, football players are like up there with cowboys in the, you know, boys don't cry. And that hurts us. And so there's something really relieving. Now, unfortunately, I think games will be played this weekend. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I've got a few uh, clients who are former NFL players and I reached out to all of them this week and they're all hurting. Mm -hmm. They're all hurting and they're all scared. They're all feeling like, what is it like to put our bodies on the line? And I have a little bit of hope this week when I watch these men cry. Mm -hmm. Thanks for sharing that. I think picking up the trail, right, Mm -hmm. around this idea of transition and change. Mm Mm-hmm. I think Parker Palmer wrote this, this when he said, when we lose track of our true self, how can we pick up the trail? Mm-hmm. One way is to seek clues and stories from our younger years, years when we live closer to our birthright gifts. How did you begin to pick up those clues for your own life? Well, I don't think I was conscious, but I think I was following Parker's advice, right? Um, to go back and revisit um, and follow the, the breadcrumbs, if you will, back through the forest. What comes to mind is Dante and in the Inferno, Beatrice is his guide. And if you recall, it, it, the poem begins midway through the journey of my life, midway through the journey of my life, midlife. Hmm. I found myself wholly lost in a dark wood. And what Beatrice does is through the various aspects of, in this case, the Inferno, she revisits parts of his life and takes a fix, if you will, on life. Who have I been? How did I make these choices? As clues to figure out where we ought to be, Mm -hmm. not according to somebody else's definition, but according to our own inner knowing it's uh it's magical you know if 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 you look at great literature if you look at our mythologies if you look at the stories we tell ourselves as societies they're almost always about transitions aren't they they are and you know sure the hero's journey but it's more than just the hero's journey it's about the fact that every generation is marked by those journeys, those transitions. And I think that they resonate. The your story is my story resonance occurs because that is part of the process of growing and growing up. So implicit in Parker's direction is also how do you know where you are, where you want to go if you haven't, taking a fix on how you got here in the first place. It's so funny you say that. So I, I read Let Your Life Speak for a third time this summer mm-hmm. in June. Mm-hmm. And around that, that passage that I just read, I started to look back and I went into these old journals of mine mm-hmm. from high school and college. Mm-hmm. And I asked myself, how did I get here? Mm-hmm. And I went back and I asked myself the question, how did I, how did I pick my college? Mm-hmm. How did I pick my major? How did I choose business? Oh, it's because mm-hmm. my older brother drove a BMW. Right. How did I, how did <laughs> right. I end up at Microsoft? Oh, right. Because my advisor told me it was the best job at the school. Right. right, right. How did I end up 
so on and so forth. And I, how did I end up in venture capital? Oh, literally by an accident, right place, right, right time. Right. And how did I end up coaching founders right. and leaders? And I started right. to look at that thread across 20 plus years. Right. And I said, I am still holding that thread. Mm. What was the thread? What is the thread? Well, I think there's a thread which has been a lot of unconscious and opportunistic chances that I've just taken advantage of. Like, for example, my brother, him driving a BMW, having a fancy finance job. I never stopped and really asked myself, well, do I want to study business and go into finance? It was just, I'm, I'm going to do this. Did you want what he had? Well, we didn't grow up with a whole lot. So we were programmed with this, you know, love my mother, talk to her almost every day, but you know, she programmed in us this, this idea of not enough because we were living paycheck to paycheck. And so what happened is, is money came front and center as Mm -hmm. a way to not only keep me safe and secure, but also as a way to create belonging Mm -hmm. and feel like I was progressing in life, like money being kind of like a marker for success. Do you know how she inherited that feeling? Well, what were her parents' story? She's an immigrant, first generation. Her parents, I mean, she literally came over on the boat to Ellis Island from Germany. Right, literally what as year? the World War was ending, 40, 48. Okay, so, and how old was she? She was like two or three, but, you know, her father but she was... she was born a, into devastation and poverty. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And, and, and what did her father do? I'm just so curious about this. Yeah, he was, he, I mean, he was a gifted engineer and carpenter, but for when he moved to the States, was basically a janitor. You know, moved to Danbury, Connecticut, and prior to the war, was it a middle class life? Yes, mid- very middle class, exactly. Right, and so, okay, your homework assignment is to is to go back into that time because I, you know, I mean, this is part of the work I'm doing with with a new book, but I love it. There is a lineage mm-hmm. that we are handed, and just like. We don't know how, where we are to go until we know how we got here. Mm-hmm. Oftentimes, we're set on a path by our grandparents and great-grandparents. I'll tell you a quick story. Dan Harris is a friend and former client and uh, the former ABC guy from 10% Happier. And when Review of the Book came out, uh, he and I had a conversation on stage at the Rubin Museum. Mm-hmm. And uh, we were talking about his transition. At the time, he had three jobs. Weekend, Good Morning America anchor. Weeknight, do the math, weeknight, every night, the, the late night news program on ABC, I forget the name of it, and 10% happier. Three jobs, one child, and a wife who was about ready to kill him. Mm-hmm. And we had successfully gotten him down to two jobs. And we had this whole conversation about why is it that you need to have three jobs or two jobs? And so we were joking about parents and growing up. And like you, he grew up in, you know, New England. And he talked about like growing up in a household where his father and mother, who were both successful middle-class doctors, Mm -hmm. would never turn the heat up because they were saving money. Yeah. And long story short, we end up reconnecting with, I think it was an uncle who killed himself for having lost a fortune. And there's this thread of cognition that was like, the storyline that gets passed down is the fortune that you have, the good fortune you have, could be taken away in a moment's notice. And I suspect your family lineage has a little bit of that going on. Yeah. And, and as Joseph Goldstein, who I, I admire mm-hmm. and love, says, anything can happen at any time. That's, and, and, and that is supposed to be advice to relieve you. Yes. But when you grow up with a family lineage of poverty or devastation or war, 
it actually produces enormous anxiety. Yeah, and and if I if if my wife were in this conversation, she would say, "Steve, we have nothing to worry about." Right. And intellectual and intellectually, I can understand you that. Get it. But emotionally, yeah, it's a whole other totally. ball game. It's a whole totally, other- totally, totally. I mean, you know, w- w- you know what we're both doing, Steve, is encouraging both people there outside listening to do this sort of self-inquiry work. And what we're doing now is extending that to say, what is the larger context? You know, that we as descendants of ancestors who went through whatever experience they went through, they hand us a series of lessons about the world, right? And the world may be, to, to paraphrase Joseph Goldstein, who doesn't intend it this way, the world may be a dangerous place. Anything can happen at any time. A war can break out through no fault of your own. You could lose pandemic. everything. A pandemic can happen. Market or, crash. You know, or it, we were talking about 9-11. Or two crazy assholes can fly planes into the World Trade Center and change lives forever. Anything can happen at any time. And when, when a child grows up with that, in your case, you and your brother may have fixated him first on BMWs as a means to safety. I don't even like cars. <laughs> but 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 it's a, it's a ball work against that in a moment's notice it could be taken away. Yeah. Yeah. I th- there is a point I want to make in for the audience mm-hmm. in terms of going backwards is mm. there's also the what are the the common themes in terms of the things that really light you up? and give you energy and where do you get meaning in your life for me what i ultimately realized through this this thread mm. that we've been talking about was i loved and craved deep authentic conversations that was something that just stood out i you know i i think i'm the same way i think i'm wired the same way i i i uh i liken it to being fully alive i liken it to uh you know, a few weeks back uh, was the solstice, and the solstice is the anniversary of my father's passing. He passed 30 years ago. And I remember waking up, and, and, and for many, many years, it was a really dark time. The loss of light, uh, the holidays, the contrast with the holidays was always very difficult for me. But as I've come into realignment of my relationship with my father, um, I've allowed myself to feel blessed. Hmm. And, and I remember writing in my journal that morning about coaching conversations I had had the day before and how blessed I feel. Steve, we are the luckiest people on the fucking planet. It's amazing. Because we get to have meaningful conversations and get paid. Every day. Right? Every day. It's like nuts. Right? And I, I just remember feeling that. So that's one thing. Um, you know, I was referencing this, the, the manuscript that I'm working through right now. I'm working through revisions, and I have to hand in the revised copy in the next couple of days. And my partner, Allie, said to me, she said, okay, so, and to be clear, right, I have 40 clients, and I'm the CEO of a company, and, you know, I've got three adult children, and I'm writing a book. Like, I have a very active life. <laughs> sure, we could spend time unpacking that. <laughs> and, um, you know, and I spend a lot of time on the weekends working on the books. And so, so, she, so she said, okay, so with all this free time that's going to come, what are you going to do? And I said, start working on the next book. Mm-hmm. Because that also gives me life. What is it about writing that gives you life? Mm. There's a there's a passage in the new book in which I talk about, I quote James Baldwin, who said that when I'm writing, I'm writing about things I don't want to know, hmm. which is like, holy crap. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, it's, it's that process of going into the back of the cave, you know, Joseph Campbell's cave. It's about the process of going back and retrieving the treasure that lies at the back of the cave. So that's one thing. Um I dislike intensely the blank page. I mm-hmm. dislike the constipated feeling of, I know what I want to say, but I, I don't like that feeling, to be clear. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I'm in a phase right now where I'm polishing, where I am what I call line editing, which is a phrase I use from my days as a magazine writer, where I'm reading line by line and literally picking up a word and moving it to the right place in the sentence. You know, mm-hmm. I like that a lot. Uh, it feels like a craft at that point. And I love the craft Hmm. piece of it. And I like discovery. Not only do I try to write about that, which I don't want to know, I write about that, which I don't know. Hmm. Um, Which means I get to figure things out. Yeah. And I I think the word that you just used, discovery, is such an important one. And coming back to transitions, and, and even, by the way, writing, I encourage anyone that comes to me that's in a transition is to pick up a, a, a notepad and a book. But can you talk about this idea that transitions are moments to discover what matters to you and the refinement of that? For those listening, how does one discover what matters to them? Mm. The way I would construct that would be, I would, I would reverse it a little bit and say, there comes a moment in your life where that which you are living doesn't work. For many people, it's our 30s. And in our 30s, it's like, okay, so I spent my teenage years trying to define myself either in opposition to or in accordance of with whomever. Mm-hmm. And then our 20s, we sort of discover new things and we find people. And if we're lucky, we find a person. And in our 30s, we start to manifest that. And then there's this nagging little feeling that arises that says, that's not enough. Or as in my case, that's the wrong body. Or in the case of my client yesterday, is this all there is? Yeah, ennui. Is that all there is? Ennui. Oh, this, this, I worked, I worked my ass off. I worried at night for this, right? So the transition doesn't happen because one says, I need to now transition. What happens is it becomes unbearable. Hmm. And so something has to change. Because what happens is the divided life. Because, because the inner and the outer are not in alignment. Because we are, as Parker would say, living crosswise with ourselves, right? So then to get through the transition, you're left really with only one of two choices. As William Bridges says, you go back and try to redo or you lean in and you go forward. And leaning in means, okay, what's not working? Oh, everything? Oh, the career choice? Okay. Oh, what motivates me? Where we're living? I mean, we saw this with the pandemic, right? Who I'm in relationship with? Who I'm in relationship with? uh, Whether or not I should be a VC? Who are my partners? How do I want to spend my minutes? Right? So transition is the description for what happens as a consequence of realizing that that which I am living no longer fits. It's not the thing we seek. What we seek is relief from that feeling. Mm -hmm. And transition is the process of trying to find that relief. And as Hollis would say, from that place on the other side of it, it's an opportunity to take responsibility for stepping into your authenticity and rewriting the, the remaining chapters of your, of your, of your story. Or, or to use another one of Hollis's phrases, your second adulthood. Yeah. It's like, oh, wait, it's not about chronology. It's not about age. It's actually about the authentic adulthood. It's about being you, the you that you were born to be. Yeah. The second adulthood, as he would say. Yeah. And how's that? How's the second adulthood been for you, Jerry? Fucking awesome. Amazing. Yeah. I mean, you know, I said before, I felt like I was living in a body that was not mine. Uh, This is my body. This is the body that I was born to occupy. Writing, connecting, laughing, joking, crying, feeling, being alive. Not empty, not hollow. I think that's a great place for us to end. Um, 
I think it's a, uh, I'm grateful for being brought back to that place. Uh, I was going to say that it's, when I was a kid, there was a uh, TV commercial for a coffee called Brim, which was fill it to the rim with Brim. And that's what I feel. I feel filled to the rim. Mm. So Yeah, me too. And yeah. I'm still, I'm still early in the new beginning. Not early, yeah, that's right. You're young it. in your second adulthood. Yes. That's what it is. I, I, yes, exactly. As, your your as hair's as still friend, dark. <laughs> as my as my as my friend Ed Batista says, I'm a I'm a young old person. That's right. That's right. Well, it's so good to see you. Thanks so much for for joining, for being the first guest and just being a supporter for all these years. Really. You got it, my friend. Thank you for doing the work. And I'm excited for the new podcast. You know, may it launch a thousand new ships and a thousand new people into coaching. One one day at a time. You got it. Take care, buddy. Thanks, Sherry. Hey, friends. This is Steve again. Just a few more things before we take off. In addition to this podcast, I have a free newsletter that I send every other Friday. It's easy to sign up and easy to cancel. Like the podcast, I share musings and curated resources on personal evolutions, life transitions, and conscious change. When you sign up, you'll also get access to my long-form essays that dive deep into a variety of topics, including emotional intelligence, coaching, mental health, solopreneurship, and more. Some of the past essays have been on ambition, judgment, parts work, and resistance to change. And if you like this episode or any others, please subscribe and leave a review in your favorite podcast app. This simple and kind gesture ensures more people will discover and benefit from the show. Finally, if you want to learn more, sponsor the show, or suggest future guests, just go to wheretheroadbends.fm. And if you feel called to reach out and say hi, you can always send me a message from there. Thanks again for tuning into this episode of Where the Road Bends. Until next time, stay curious and keep exploring the winding road of life.